0: London Calling, London Walks Connecting, this is London, story time, history time, streets ahead. A special treat today and tomorrow. Special treat, but we're still very much in Trafalgar Square, in the National Gallery, in front of one painting, and which painting would that be? Well, it's Valentine's Day, so naturally, we're in front of Bronzino's Allegory with Venus and Cupid. Venus and Cupid before us, gifted art historian Helena at our side. Over the next two podcasts, Helena's going to unfold Bronzino's Venus and Cupid for us, like a rosebud opening up. Oxford-educated Helena guided brilliantly for London walks for many years. American executive Christopher, one of my all-time favorite walkers, put it best about Helena. He said, I could listen to that little blonde all day. Now comes the sad part, though it's not completely sad. We lost Helena a few years ago. She moved to Cornwall. But we didn't completely lose her because she makes the occasional contribution to the London Walks podcast. And I hope the day is coming when she'll do virtual art history tours for us, because she does it to perfection. Walter Pater once said, To burn always with this hard, gem-like flame, to maintain this ecstasy, is success in life. When I listen to Helena talk about paintings she knows so well, And loves so much. Well, I'm always put in mind of that remark by Walter Pater. Hard gem-like flame, maintaining the ecstasy. Helena partakes of that success in life, partakes of it, and shares it with us. Here's Helena.
1: Hello, everyone. It's Helena here in Truro, here to talk about more great works of art. The subject of today's podcast is one of the most enigmatic, erotic, fascinating, disturbing, confusing, puzzling, and shocking painting in the National Gallery's collection. It dates to around 1545, its medium is oil on wood, it measures 146 by 116 centimetres, and it was acquired by the National Gallery in 1860. It is an allegory with Venus and Cupid, by the artist Bronzino. Now, I suggest you download an image of the painting from the National Gallery's website so you can be looking at it as we explore the painting in greater depth. The allegory is one of those paintings that, when you enter the room in which it is displayed, demands your immediate and undivided attention. And you are drawn towards it by the two central figures, male and female, both naked both kneeling in a rather elegant if awkward fashion while engaged in a very erotic embrace. The tongues are touching and the male, who on closer examination appears to be a youth, is fondling the woman's left breast and squeezing the nipple between his index and middle finger. Then when you realise the identity of the couple, Venus the goddess of love and beauty and her son Cupid, you're probably surprised and shocked by what is clearly an incestuous encounter, yet presented in such an elegant and graceful way. Then your gaze moves onto the figures and objects surrounding the couple. You wonder who they are, what they represent, and how they're all connected. What's the symbolism behind the pair of masks at the bottom right-hand corner, for example? Or the doves at the bottom left? And above the doves, next to Cupid... Who is the person who clutches their head in their hands, their face contorted in pain, howling in agony? Above this figure is a ghoulish presence, sightless with the back of its head missing. It holds the corner of a blue sheet with which it appears to be doing a tug-of-war with the strong muscular male at the top right-hand corner. He is winged with an hourglass on his back of ruddy complexion, and, though bald, sports a greyish-white tufted beard and moustache. And then beneath him is a chubby boy, naked like Venus and Cupid, with curly hair and a foolish grin, matched by the fool's bells around his left ankle, who has swung both arms to one side above his head, as though about to shower the couple with the pink rose petals he grasped between both hands. But most strange and disturbing of all is the figure between Venus and the naked boy. At first sight, she appears to be a pretty girl with golden hair crowned with a band of pearls, piercing blue eyes and rosebud lips and cheeks. But on closer examination, we see that the head to which the body is attached is part mammal, part reptile, finished off with a long, thick, snake-like tail. While our brain is trying to process all these strange images, we admire the vibrancy of the colour scheme, the brilliant ultramarine blue of the drapery that acts as a curtain for the lovers and a carpet on which Venus both kneels and sits, the deep fuchsia of the cushion on which Cupid kneels, and the whiteness of the pale flesh of the lovers. We are also impressed by the virtuosity of the artist in rendering exquisitely the different textures and materials, the sheen and dazzle of the drapery, the softness of the flesh and lightness of the dove's feathers. The composition may be bizarre, but it has an amazing sense of realism about it, which is quite stunning. So we find our thoughts and emotions going in all different directions. We're attracted to it and repelled by it, fascinated and disturbed by it in equal measure. It really does play havoc with our brains. So who was responsible for this mind-muddling masterpiece? Well, his full name was Agnolo di Cosimo di Mariano, but he came to be known to contemporaries and posterity by his sobriquet Bronzino. We don't know for sure how he acquired this nickname, possibly a reference to his dark complexion or red hair, And we've no way of confirming that theory either, as we don't have any portraits of him during his prime years and no contemporary accounts of his appearance. We do have an image of him when he was 15, but the features are indistinct. And that's because it's not a portrait as such. Rather, Bronzino was modelling as one of the characters in a large narrative painting called Joseph and Jacob in Egypt, dating to 1518, by the artist Jacob Carucci, known from his village of birth as Pontoromo. That painting is also in the National Gallery, so you may want to pause the tape and look it up on their website. And if you do, it isn't difficult to spot Bronzino. He's in the foreground, just off centre to the right, sitting on the first of three steps, wearing a brown tunic and black cape and hat, holding a large brown bag. If you're able to enlarge the image, you'll see it's quite a charming and touching portrait of the boy. And it may come to you as no surprise to learn that Pontormo was Bronzino's first and principal tutor. He was very fond of Bronzino, who'd entered his workshop when he was just 12. And though he was only nine years older than Bronzino, Pontormo regarded him as a son as much as a student. He was also well aware of Bronzino's great potential and precocious talent, and was hugely influential in the development of his style and technique. Now, both artists were protagonists for and developers of a genre of art known as mannerism, from the Italian word maniera, meaning style or stylishness. It bridged the gap between the High Renaissance and Baroque period, and was very popular from about 1520 to 1560, particularly in court circles. There's been a good deal of debate about how the genre developed and what it stood for, it's been suggested that with its often disturbing, anxiety-provoking qualities, it was a reflection on the political and religious upheavals of the 16th century. Some art historians argue that it was a reaction against High Renaissance art. Others, that it was a natural extension of it. Suffice it to say, I would argue there were two key principles underpinning the genre, which are reflected in its main characteristics. One was the belief that the visual attraction, the aesthetic appeal, the style and elegance, if you like, of a work of art was of paramount importance. If necessary, Renaissance principles such as realism, order, balance, harmony, noble subject matter and clarity of expression of thoughts and ideas should be sacrificed in pursuit of these objectives. And the second principle was that art should be a vehicle for demonstrating the virtuosity of the artist, not just in terms of their technical skills, but also their intellectual prowess and inventiveness and creativity. The age of the artist as a mere craftsman has passed. Artists now see themselves as belonging to a distinguished profession, and many are ambitious to establish their fame, fortune and reputation. And the most direct way to do this is through their work. It's very much... Look what I can do art. So if you look at the key characteristics of mannerism, we see they reflect this preoccupation with the visual appeal, the style and elegance of the artwork, and the promotion of the artist's remarkable skills. A key trait of mannerism is the manipulation of the human anatomy for the purposes of style and elegance. So we often find hands exchanged, limbs twisted, body parts extended or enlarged, and this often results in the head looking especially small. Often the body will be twisted into a serpentine shape like the letter S, which was regarded as a truly beautiful line. In portraits, sitters often hold contrived poses and exaggerated gestures and wear aloof expressions bordering on the arrogant. To modern eyes, they appear stiff, insincere and artificial, but to contemporaries, they would have been regarded as the height of elegance and sophistication, and a reflection on the status of the city and their intelligence and artistic sensibilities. The use of unnatural, often acidic colours was common, chosen for their visual and emotional impact. Lighting is artificial, strong and bright, with little shadow. This meant that every detail, every contour, could be carefully scrutinised by the viewer. No chance for the artist to hide any imperfections in the shadows. On the contrary, under that glaring light, they were able to demonstrate their superb draftsmanship. Mannerist art frequently has an illogical compression of space, with figures crowded into the foreground, causing a sense of claustrophobia. Perspective is often distorted, and the Renaissance principles of order and balance discarded. Now, critics of mannerism might claim that it was all a case of style over substance. But in fact, mannerist art could be very complex, difficult to read, with obscure subject matter and objects or figures difficult to identify or interpret. The viewer feels they're being presented with a puzzle that the artist challenges them to work out that's why the genre was so popular in court circles because it gave the courtiers something to do to while away the tedious hours governed so much by endless routine etiquette and protocol while the genre could be very bizarre with all its tricks and distortions of the human body light color and perspective it could also combine this with a strong element of photographic like realism a bit like a vivid dream which is utter nonsense but completely believable because the images are so true to life. The Mannerist artists would argue that they could imitate nature just as brilliantly as their Renaissance rivals or predecessors. The difference is that they chose to enhance nature, to produce a more idealised, elegant version of the world in which they lived. Mannerism truly was the stylish style. Now, Bronzino largely made his fame and fortune as the official and favourite court artist to Cosimo de' Medici, Duke of Florence. You could compare him with Hans Holbein, who gave us so many memorable images of Henry VIII and his leading courtiers. Likewise, we're given a great insight into what life was like at the Medici court through the artwork of Bronzino. But aside from some portraits of Cosimo his wife, Eleonora, and other leading members of the Florentine Court. He is probably best known for the allegory with Venus and Cupid, and the work is often cited as the epitome of Mannerist art. It's for that reason that I wanted to give a brief outline of Mannerist art and its key features, so that as we explore the painting in greater detail, we can recognise some of its key characteristics. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, our initial reaction to this painting can be one of confusion. The meaning of the painting is unclear, and aside from Venus and Cupid, the identity of the other figures and meaning behind the objects is unknown. Now, Bronzino would have been delighted by our puzzled response to it, because his work is an allegory. A puzzle, a mystery which needs solving. The only problem is that he didn't leave a solution on page 69. Either he never made a written record of the meaning, or it's been lost for centuries. Either way, it presents art historians with a problem when discussing the work. There are those who simply state that the meaning of the painting will never be known. But there are others who've taken a bolder approach. Drawing upon the 16th century knowledge of classical mythology and signs and symbols made popular in emblem books... They have identified the figures and the symbolic meaning of the objects, have worked out how they relate to each other, and from their research have worked out the central message of the painting. And What I intend to do in this podcast is present one such interpretation of the work. Now, it's a mainstream theory, which many art historians regard as being plausible. However, it is just that, a theory, and therefore open to dispute. Now, one problem in trying to work out the meaning is that different symbols and figures in art can mean different things depending on their context. For example, in a Christian setting, the dove can represent the Holy Spirit or peace. But in a classical mythological setting, it can represent lustful behavior. And indeed, the interpretation I'll be discussing today does have its weaknesses, which has led to an alternative theory being put forward, which I shall also discuss And I will conclude by adding one or two thoughts of my own. Well, that brings part one of the podcast to an end. In part two, we'll embark on our journey of discovery. See if we can crack the code and reveal the meaning behind this strange, enigmatic and erotic painting. So I very much hope to enjoy your company in part two of the podcast. Goodbye.
0: You've been listening to This is London, the London Walks podcast. Emanating from walks.com, home of London Walks, London's signature walking tour company, London's local, time-honored, fiercely independent, family-owned, just the right size walking tour company. And as long as we're at it, London's multi award winning walking tour company. Indeed, London's only award winning walking tour company. And here's the secret sauce London Walks is essentially run as a guides cooperative. That's the key to everything. It's the reason we're able to attract and keep the best guides in London. You can get schlubbers to do this for £20 a walk. But you cannot get world-class guides, let alone accomplished professionals. It's not rocket science. You get what you pay for. And just as surely, you also get what you don't pay for. Back in 1968, when we got started, we quickly came to a fork in the road. We had to answer a searching question. Do we want to make the most money? Or do we want to be the best walking tour company in the world? You want to make the most money, you go the schlubber's route. You want to be the best walking tour company on the planet. You do whatever you have to do to attract and keep the best guides in London. You want them guiding for you, not for somebody else. Bears repeating, the way we're structured, a guides cooperative, is the key to the whole thing. It's the reason for all those awards. It's the reason people who know go with London Walks. It's the reason we've got a big following, a lively, loyal, discerning following. Quality attracts quality. It's the reason we're able, uniquely, to front our walks with accomplished, in many cases, distinguished professionals. By way of example, Stuart Purvis, the former editor and subsequently CEO of Independent Television News, and Lisa Honan, who had a distinguished career as a diplomat. Lisa was the governor of St. Helena, the island where Napoleon breathed his last and, some say, had his penis amputated. Napoleon didn't feel a thing, if things the most juste, He was dead. Stuart and Lisa both of them CBEs, are just a couple of our headline acts. Or take our Ripper walk. It's the creation of the world's leading expert on Jack the Ripper, Donald Rumbelow, the author of the definitive book on the subject. Britain's most distinguished crime historian. Donald is, in the words of the Jack the Ripper A to Z, internationally recognized as the leading authority on Jack the Ripper. Donald's emeritus now, but he's still the guiding light on our Ripper Walk. He curates the walk. He trains up and mentors our Ripper Walk guides, fields any and all questions they throw at him. The London Walk's aristocracy of talent, its all-star team of guides, includes a former London mayor. It includes the former chief music critic for the Evening Standard, It includes the chair of the Association of Professional Tour Guides and the former chair of the Guild of Guides. It includes barristers, doctors, geologists, museum curators, a former Museum of London archaeologist, historians, university professors, including a Cambridge University paleontologist, criminal defense lawyers, Royal Shakespeare Company and National Theatre Actors, Come then, let us go forward together on some great London walks. And that's by way of saying, good walking and good Londoning, one and all. See you next time.